Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Jalani Tulo and Tami Kluza. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Sudan denies bombing sites in South Sudan. Kenya orders UN to move Somali refugee camp. And Hillary Clinton kicks off her 2016 presidential campaign. In economics, National Bank of Abu Dhabi to expand its wealth management business in Africa. And in sports news, South Africa and Ivory Coast fail to qualify for the All-Africa Games. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Sudanese begin voting today in an election boycotted by the main opposition parties. The presidential and parliamentary polls will be held up to Wednesday. The election looks to extend President Omar Hassan al-Bashir's more than 25 years in power. Boycotting parties say a clampdown on the opposition media and civil society has created an impossible environment to run against al-Bashir, who has ruled the country since a 1989 army backed coup. The European Union has criticized the political environment ahead of the polls. A Kenyan student has died and over a hundred others were injured after an electricity transformer exploded causing a stampede. The student who died was, among others, who jumped from as high as five floors, fearing the University of Nairobi's Kikuyu campus had come under attack. Gunmen from the Al-Shabaab group stormed Garissa University College in Kenya more than a week ago, killing 148 people. A bomb has exploded outside the Moroccan embassy in Libya's capital, Tripoli, this morning with no casualties reported. The bombing came hours after gunmen opened fire on South Korea's embassy compound from a passing car yesterday, killing two Libyan guards and wounding a third person. Morocco is currently hosting a UN-backed dialogue between representatives of the two rival governments controlling the country with talks to resume on an unspecified specified date. 800,000 children have been forced to flee their homes due to the acts of terror committed by Nigeria-based militant group Boko Haram. In a new report released, United Nations Children's Fund says the number of child refugees either displaced across Nigeria or in neighboring Chad, Niger and Cameroon has more than doubled over the past year. The terrorist activities of Boko Haram have forced over one and a half million people out of their dwellings. 
Zimbabwe's Consul General in South Africa, Henry Mukonoweshuru, says diplomatic ties between South Africa and Zimbabwe will not be affected by the ongoing xenophobic attacks in the Greater Etiguini Municipality and South Africa's coastal city of Durban. Hundreds of foreign nationals from Zimbabwe, the DRC, Ethiopia and Somalia have been displaced after xenophobic attacks in Durban. Close to 2,000 foreign nationals are being housed in three temporary makeshift camps. Mukunuwishuru says they will be working closely with their South African counterparts to find a solution and put an end to the ongoing violence. It's just a question of uh, a few misguided individuals. To some extent, I think some vagrants who just thought if they create the chaos, people run away from their homes, then they can vandalize and steal. But I mean, look, my president was here a few days ago, met with our President Zuma, and elevate our, our political and economic relations. Our people are here. There was a special dispensation given by the Home Minister Gigaba, and um, I think talks are continuing. This uh, is a dent, I mean, but look, these, these problems are never at any one time planned for. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Sudan has accused Sudan of carrying out deadly attacks in northern and western Bar el Ghazal states. At least five people were killed, but Sudan has vehemently denied the accusation. James Shimanyula reports. The government of President Salva Kiir in Ijuba, the capital of South Sudan, says its two states in the northwestern part of the country have been bombed by Republic of the Sudan, its neighbor in the north. The government says the bombing resulted in the death of five people residing in villages located in northern and western Bahar El Ghazal states two of South Sudan's ten states. Northern and western Bahar El Ghazal are northwest of South Sudan's capital Yuba. Western Bahar El Ghazal, whose capital is Raga, borders the Central African Republic, while northern Bahar El Ghazal, whose capital is Awil, lies southwest of the disputed oil-rich region of Abia. For more than three years, South Sudan has claimed that its northern neighbor has been carrying out bombing raids on its territory in the pretext of pursuing rebels, a claim that the authorities in Khartoum have repeatedly denied. Now the government of President Salva Kiir continues to accuse the government of President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir of bombing the two states in Bahar el-Ghazal killing five people. The accusation that Khartoum government bombed the two states was made at a press conference in South Sudan, capital Juba, by President Salva Kiir's official spokesman, Ateng Wekateng. The attack is presumed to be coming from neighboring Sudan. Antelope planes are still bombarding areas around western Baragazal, county of Raja and northern Baragazal states. 
responding to the government of Juba's bombing accusation republic of the Sudan's information minister Ahmed Bilal told me by telephone from Khartoum that his government has not bombed the two states in South Sudan. Why should uh, Salva Kirzi government accuse Khartoum of bombing South Sudan. Why? This is not the first time we are not attacking the South. Why should we do that? Republic of the Sudan's denial contradicted with a recent report prepared by the New York-based Human Rights Watch researcher for South Sudan and Republic of the Sudan, Jihan Henry. Jihan Henry says the bombing in Africa's newest nations, western and northern Bahar el-Ghazal states, have been a common feature. This has been a common theme in the two areas. He did find evidence suggesting that the bombings were indiscriminate. They were unguided munitions that were delivered in a way that could not make the difference between civilians and military targets. That was the New York-based Human Rights Watch researcher for South Sudan and Republic of the Sudan, Jehan Henry. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Kenya has given the United Nations three months to remove a camp housing more than half a million Somali refugees as part of a get-tough response to the killing of 148 people by Somali gunmen at a Kenyan university. Kenya has in the past accused Islamist militants of hiding out in Dadaab camp, which it now wants the UN refugee agency, UNHCR, to move across the border to inside Somalia. Waigi Konyo reports from Nairobi. According to Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees should make alternative arrangements to relocate the Somali refugees in the Dadaab refugee camp within the next three months, otherwise Kenyan authorities will forcibly relocate them inside Somalia. The order came a few days after political leaders in the area called for the closure of the refugees' camps because it was a breeding ground for the Al-Shabaab militants group. Kenya's members of parliament had previously accused the Al-Shabaab militants for hiding out in the Dadaab refugee camp, which are the centers for training, coordination, and assembling of terror networks in Kenya. It is where terrorists plan attacks. MP Arden Duale. The 500,000 refugee camps that are based in northern Kenya have, have been, and the intelligence provides, are the centers where the training, the coordination, the assembling of terror networks is there. They have been with us for 20 years. I think time has come when the national security of our people becomes first. The camp hosts more than 500,000 refugees and is the largest refugee camp in Africa. It is only a few kilometers from the Garissa town and is situated in a remote dry corner of northeastern part of Kenya and bordering the neighboring Somalia. The government directive is also part of a get tough response to the recent killing of 148 students at the Garissa University College by the Somali al-Shabaab militants. And speaking in Kiswahili, Kenya's deputy president William Ruto said that the way America changed after the 9-11 terrorist attack is the way Kenya will change after the Gariza University terror attack.
Kenyan government has started building a 700-long wall along the entire length of the border with Somalia to keep up to members of the Al-Shabaab Islamist group. Recently, Kenya closed 13 informal money remittance firms, Hawalas, to cut off funding to suspected radicals. And according to Deputy President William Ruto, any business that collaborates with the Al-Shabaab militants would be shut down. So far, Al-Shabaab has killed more than 400 people in the Kenyan soil in the last two years, including the Westgate Mall in 2013, damaging tourism and inward investment. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, says the situation in Yemen is getting worse by the hour. Fighting between Houthi rebels and an Arab coalition supporting the Yemeni government is putting millions of people at risk of physical injury or death. As a result, UNHCR says it is seeing a rise in people fleeing by boat across the Gulf of Aden to countries in the Horn of Africa, a route that is historically travelled in the opposite direction. The agency's spokesperson, Adrian Edwards, elaborates. The situation has been getting worse for a number of days now. There's conflict in at least 14 or 15 of Yemen's 22 governorates. In Aden City, we have seen a dramatic worsening of the situation, complete lawlessness, pressure on the population from a number of quarters, and from that area in particular, we've started to see uh, boats carrying refugees heading across the Gulf of Aden and Red Sea to the Horn of Africa. Now, that's important because this is historically a route where refugees and migrants flee in very large numbers in the opposite direction to Yemen. Uh, So this is a very worrying change. So what happens if they make it across? Who's receiving them back in the Horn of Africa? Well, at the moment, they are being received, both in Djibouti, where we've had about 300 Yemeni refugees arriving, and then also in Somaliland, in the north of Somalia, where something in the region of five, 600 people have so far arrived. The numbers are still relatively small, and we're able to provide immediate medical care, any kind of immediate food, other assistance that they need there. But the problem is that fundamentally this region simply isn't in a uh, ready situation to deal with a mass outflow if that's what we get. To reiterate what you were saying, in the past it's been people fleeing the Horn of Africa, going to Yemen, and now is it both people returning to their original countries and Yemenis who are leaving Yemen? It is both, that's correct. Uh, Yemen is uh, to Djibouti, about 300 of them, and also Somalis and a small number of Ethiopians and Djiboutian nationals going to Somalia. More people are planning to leave Aden to take this dangerous boat journey. It's very worrying for us. There's no search and rescue capacity in that area at all. Uh, We know last year that people coming across there in the opposite direction to Yemen, of those at least 240 deaths were recorded. Do you think that other countries will assist in providing ships in order to monitor the passage of these boats from one location to another? We certainly hope so. Um, We have appealed to all ships in the air to be extra vigilant, to assist any boats in distress. We've also appealed to countries that have vessels working on surveillance and anti-piracy operations in this region to also be on the lookout for boats in distress. Back in Yemen, are people being caught in the crossfire or are they directly targeted? 
we have had incidents where aid workers unfortunately become victims of violence there. It is an extremely worrying situation for the civilian population in general. For us, we're looking at through, through several prisms. We have already about a quarter of a million Somali refugees and some other nationals, including Syrian refugees in Yemen. On top of that, before this crisis, we had more than 300,000 people who were displaced internally inside Yemen. And then we've got new displacement. We still don't have numbers for that. And I'm assuming that for United Nations humanitarian workers, the situation is just becoming increasingly difficult. Well, Yemen is a very unusual case in that about two weeks ago, the international staff of the United Nations left the country. They were forced to evacuate. Now, this was weeks and months after staff of embassies and many other foreign nationals had left the country. But it obviously is an extremely uncomfortable situation for any of us to be in. Our teams have been temporarily relocated to Amman uh, in Jordan, but we're working on getting back there. We have staff still in the country, more than 100 of them, but obviously in situations of great difficulty. That was Adrian Edwards, spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, speaking to UN Radio's Stephanie Kutrix. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has ended months of speculation by announcing she's entered the race to win control of the White House in 2016. She's pledged to champion the aspirations of ordinary Americans. The former senator and first lady has already hit the campaign trail in her bid for the Democrats' nomination. She is heading to the state of Iowa, where early party elections take place. Show and Bryce Peace reports. I'm getting ready for a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. That's how the first video of the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign begins ending years of speculation as to whether the former First Lady, U.S. Senator and Secretary of State would enter the race for president. Her announcement makes her the first and only Democratic Party candidate to make her intentions known with an immediate pitch to the American middle class voter. I'm getting ready to do something too. I'm running for president. Americans have fought their way back from tough economic times, but the deck is still stacked in favor of those at the top. Everyday Americans need a champion, and I want to be that champion. So you can do more than just get by. You can get ahead and stay ahead, because when families are strong, America is strong. The historic nature of a successful campaign could see the first woman elected as commander-in-chief of the largest economy and most powerful military in the world. But by merely becoming the Democratic Party nominee, she will have succeeded where no other woman has. So I'm hitting the road to earn your vote because it's your time and I hope you'll join me on this journey. But she will face a tough battle to succeed her former boss, President Barack Obama. History doesn't favor candidates from the same party after two terms in the White House. That said, 
she received an early endorsement from the incumbent. She was a formidable candidate in 2008. She was a great supporter of mine in the general election. She was an outstanding Secretary of State. She is my friend. I think she would be an excellent president. As the country's former chief diplomat, the electorate will be eager to have Mrs. Clinton lay out her domestic agenda, as President Obama alluded to. In terms of her relationship with my administration, she was uh, focused and working on uh, really important foreign policy initiatives. And uh, you know, the one thing I can say is that she's going to be able to uh, handle herself very well uh, in any conversations or debates around uh, foreign policy. Um, and her track record with respect to dom domestic policy is, I think, uh, one that uh, cares about working families. Uh, you know, if, if she decides to run and she makes an announcement, she's going to have some uh, uh, strong messages to deliver. Two Republicans have so far announced their candidacy, freshman Senators Rand Paul from Kentucky and Tea Party favorite from Texas, Ted Cruz. Several more announcements are expected in the coming days in what will likely be a crowded Republican field that could include former President George W. Bush's brother Jeb. While they will fight it out for their party's nomination, they will be united in their quest to hit hard at the Clinton campaign, as this Rand Paul attack ad does. Hillary Clinton represents the worst of the Washington machine. The arrogance of power, corruption and cover-up, conflicts of interest and failed leadership with tragic consequences. Mrs. Clinton has broad name recognition and almost 40 years in the spotlight, which pundits argue has both pros and cons. She begins her campaign early next week with small events in Iowa and New Hampshire that her campaign is calling a listening tour and an opportunity to reintroduce herself to voters. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A heated battle for the leadership of South Africa's opposition, the DA, has begun following Helen Ziller's announcement that she will not stand for re-election at the party's elective congress, slated for the 9th of May in Port Elizabeth. Ziller announced she is stepping down on Sunday after an extraordinary meeting of the party's federal council in Kempton Park. Debo Mukobo has more. The statement that I'm going to make today very simply is a statement that I will be not available for re-election at the DA's Federal Congress on May the 9th. This has been a decision that was taken last week after consideration over not only months but years. And very often people have asked me, how long will you stay as the leader of the Democratic Alliance? And I've always answered, I will know when the time is right. And believe me, the time is right. After being at the helm of the country's official opposition for the past eight years, Helen Ziller is bowing out. However, she will finish her term as Premier of the Western Cape, 
Zile says the decision, though sudden, was long coming. She says she will remain within the party and help campaign for the 2016 local government elections. The DA leader says she decided to step down to partly avoid a debilitating leadership battle. An advantage of my late decision is that the campaign that will determine the DA's next leader will be short and sharp given that our elective Congress is four weeks away. This avoids the potential for a debilitating contest that deflects attention and effort away from the party's core functions, which inevitably happens when a leadership race drags out for long periods of time. Now, my decision wasn't determined by that fact. This happens to be a helpful byproduct of my decision that we will not have a debilitating and divisive leadership contest that lasts for two years and that distracts our attention from what we need to be doing. Already several names, including the relatively unknown Jack Swart and Neil Els, are being bandied about to take over from Zile, who grew the party winning the DA more than 4 million votes in last year's general elections, the biggest ever. But some senior members of the party are mum about their next course of action. Some of them want Wilmot James, the current federal chairperson, to take over, while others want Cape Town Mayor Patricia Dillil to replace Zile. DA leader in Houghton, John Moody, says he's being lobbied and is now considering the position. I've been inundated with calls and SMSs, messages of people asking me to reconsider and to stand and to avail myself to stand. I have an individual in mind that I would like to support, but if that individual declines, then I will most definitely be throwing my hat in the ring as well. But all eyes are on the party's parliamentary leader, Musima Imani, who is seen as Zilla's blue-eyed boy and a trusted political ally. Zile made him spokesperson and begged him to become Houghton Premier candidate and ultimately her leader in Parliament. But in Parliament, Maiman is accused of being completely overshadowed by the newcomer economic freedom fighters led by Julius Malema, despite having numbers. He is cautious on leading the party, saying he still has to consult widely before deciding on his next course of action. I've got to spend a lot of time thinking what it means for the DA. This is a significant moment. And I think I want to allow South Africans to be able to look at Helen's legacy and be able to appreciate the contribution that she's made. As to who fulfills the role or whether I fulfill the role is something that I'll think about deeply. And like I just found out today, is something that I'll have to discuss with all the respective structures. I'll see what happens after that. Many other people who have been lobbied and it's going to be an internal election. Of course I'll consider it. The party's Eastern Cape leader, Athol Trollip, whom at some point was overlooked by Zile in favor of Lindy Wemazibuk as parliamentary leader, says he was angry at the time that his leader interfered with the party's democratic process. But Zile is now committed to staying out of the race, admitting that she has meddled in the past. Trollip says he bears no grudges against Zile. His eyes are now firm on the federal chairmanship position, insisting that he will support a leader that will champion non-racialism. What I'm looking for is a, a leader who will start talking about non-racialism in South Africa, who will bring back the concept of the fact that we all have value and that combined our value is better than divided. I think our society is too polarized at the moment. I think the current leadership polarizes it even more. So I would be looking to support a candidate who brings non-racialism to the fore of our leadership in the Democratic Alliance. But taking the federal chair Chairmanship won't be an easy ride for Trollip. He is squaring up against one of the party's rising star, former youth leader Magashule Ghana, who is well aware of a stiff contest. Today's announcement by our federal leader does not change anything. I'm going ahead with uh, my campaign to be the federal chair, and uh, I've been receiving since the announcement uh, was made uh, continued support from the people that were supporting me, so that hasn't changed. I'm very confident of going to the Congress. Those that said they will support, I still think they will continue to support me. As the Democratic Alliance turns a new page, the question is whether a new leader will consolidate the work Zile has done growing the number of black voters for the party. I am Debu Mokobov in Kempton Park.
South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba has once again assured the diplomatic corps of government's seriousness to combat xenophobia. Gigaba met with ambassadors in the capital Pretoria last week. The meeting follows acts of xenophobic violence in Guazul-Natal after Zulu King Goodwill Zuelitini's alleged call for foreigners to go back to their countries of origin. Gigaba has appealed to leaders in the country to stop making careless comments regarding immigrants in the country. Komutsomopulane reports. The Diplomatic Society has been asking to meet with Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba for quite some time now. Top of the agenda were the new migration laws which came into effect in May last year and the ongoing xenophobic attacks. Gigaba has assured the diplomatic corps that they are trying their best to address the issue and left out to leaders who make careless comments which lead to violent xenophobic attacks. He elaborates. The South African government is really seriously concerned about the outbreak of violence directed at foreign nationals in our country. And that... Where this is happening, we are doing our best to address it. But I want to make a plea, which I have done before, that political, religious, traditional community and other leaders in South Africa must desist from making remarks which are reckless and could result in loss of human life. It doesn't matter what drives you at that particular moment. Leaders in our country must refrain from making comments which could result in, in loss to human life. Gaba says South Africa cannot afford to be seen as a xenophobic country. The international community must not view South Africa as a xenophobic and Afrophobic country. And Africa in particular must not think that we hate fellow Africans so much that we are prepared to do the worst to cause them harm. South Africa belongs to Africa first and foremost. And when all is said and done, we are an African country. People must refrain from taking the law into their own hands. And where there are challenges, they must refer those to authorities and let the authorities deal with those challenges in terms of the powers, the mandate, and the authority which they have. We are taking steps to address this, to ensure that nobody takes the law into their own hands and to ensure that there is better integration between foreign nationals in our country, particularly those from Africa who live in poorer communities and households, to deal with the challenges which seem to be a problem, which include small traders, small businesses. Meanwhile, Somali ambassador to South Africa, Mohamed Ali Meri, has raised concerns over the ongoing attacks. He says Somali nationals are some of the most affected by the attacks. On new migration laws, Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba says they're looking at making things easier for everyone who's affected. And this comes after receiving numerous suggestions from various industries, which includes the film and sports sector, among others. For Channel Africa, I'm Khamuza Mupulane in Johannesburg. It's 8.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. The party of Nigeria's president-elect, Muhammad Buhari, has retained the Lagos state governorship. Voting was extended in several other states due to violence or voting irregularities. Sudanese begin voting today in an election boycotted by the main opposition parties. The election looks set to extend President Umar Hassan al-Bashir's more than 25 years in power. And opposition supporters in Gabon rampage through the streets of the capital, burning cars and setting fire to the embassy of Benin following the death of a senior opposition leader. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rising. Le soleil élevé. Weya Wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonan. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayyomi, Kilon Shele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It is 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The African Population and Health Research Center, APHRC, based in Kenya, has won the 2015 United Nations Population Award. Established in 1981, the award is given to individuals and institutions for exceptional work and achievement in the fields of population and health. Over the last decade, the center has contributed to a better Africa through quality research and results-based strategic communications and policy engagement. For more on the organization's work, Jane Matebula spoke to the head of the Population Dynamics and Reproductive Health Program at APHRC, Chimza Izugbara. So the African Population and Health Research Center, also known as APHRC, is an international research organization that is headquartered here in Nairobi, Kenya. We've worked in quite a number of uh, sub-Saharan African countries. Currently, I think we have uh, worked in almost 20 African countries, ranging from South Africa to Burkina Faso. Our research focuses on the following thematic areas, population dynamics and reproductive health, education, health systems research, aging and development, and urbanization and poverty. We also do capacity building, particularly the training of uh, doctoral students uh, who represent the future of research on the continent. We also have a division that does policy engagement, which affects the research we do Another good research on the continent and tries to engage policy actors and policy audiences with evidence. We are almost 20 years old and our core business is research and policy engagement. Take us through some of the key achievements which one could attribute to the organization earning the UN Population Award this year. Well, our achievements are quite copious. In terms of research, we've been in the forefront of calling attention 
um, some of the key population dynamics on the continent, questions of migration, questions of unsafe abortion, questions of fertility. The stall, for instance, is the decline in Kenya. This is an area where we've worked in terms of understanding what is driving the stall and how governments can actually uh, get involved in terms of improving health outcomes for women, in terms of uh, ensuring uh, access to family planning services, in terms of ensuring male support for women. Our research, for instance, on health has been the forefront of calling attention to questions on cardiovascular diseases, tropical diseases, and obesity. In the area of aging, I think EPHRC uh, remains in the forefront of research on the question of aging and development on the continent. As we speak, we do not have many experts working on aging on the continent, and Africa, EPHRC, remains possibly the only institution with a dedicated focus on aging and development on the continent. We have also been in the forefront of calling attention to urbanization as, a, as an emerging dynamics on the continent and its implications for health, particularly for the urban poor. And this is an area where we have achieved a lot in terms of generating robust evidence that can support policy and action uh, in different parts of the continent. Now, Chima, as a research-based organization, moving forward, what are some of the key areas which you feel that still need more attention, which you plan to further investigate? Oh, there are quite a number of issues that remain very unclear in terms of population dynamics. For instance, we still have lots and lots of myths surrounding contraception, surrounding contraceptives on the continent. These myths keep emerging new forms every day, and we need to understand what is driving these myths and how these myths actually negate uh, women's use of contraceptives. There is still the whole question of um, the implications of urbanization for health on the continent, and this is still an area that uh, we still need to probe further to be able to understand what is happening and be able to, to prepare for the future of the continent. And in different areas of health, if you look at what happened in, in, in North Africa recently with the Ebola disease, it tells you that there is still a lot of understanding that we need to have about how health systems in the continent work and what can be done to strengthen them to respond to emergencies, to respond to some of these diseases that uh, emerge now and then. And that was Chima Izugbara, head of the Population Dynamics and Reproductive Health Program at the African Population Health Research Center on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Jane Matebula. Statistics from the World Health Organization show that more than 600 million adults across the globe are obese. South Africa is a leader in this alarming trend, with about 61% of the population being overweight or obese. A South African Society for Obesity and Metabolism says these figures highlight the importance of addressing the disease on the African continent. For more on this, Elizabeth Ledicha spoke to Professor Tess van der Merwe from South African Society for Obesity and Metabolism. Well, I think the interesting thing for us is if you look at our population of 6 billion people worldwide, approximately between 2 and 3 billion people will now be regarded as overweight or obese. That's at a BMI 25 and above. And another 2 billion will be malnourished and underweight. The stark reality that we are now facing in the world is that we now have as many, if not perhaps even more, 
obese and overweight people worldwide as they have malnourished and underweight. Now, obesity, I understand, is growing on a global scale, as you say, faster than any other cause of disease. Do we know what this growth is attributed to? Very multifactorial. I think we live in a very complex environment. I think gone are the days when we used to say this is strictly input versus output with, in other words, eat less, move more. If it was that simple, we would have found the solutions to the problem by now. It's a preponderance towards a genetic trait that we're picking up with some of the genes becoming more abnormal in their functioning. And what we do know is that certain environmental factors, some of the foods that we eat can impact on the dysfunctionality of these genes even further. Of course, there are other factors that we are now busy investigating, like has the gut organisms in our bodies changed? Are we having a dysregulated sleep pattern worldwide? What impact has world stress got on our small kidneys in the body? What impact has certain aspects of malnourishment got on the fetus that the mother carries? So I think it's very complicated, and I think that... That exactly is why we have to look at research and development in this field very constructively. You're one of the people who believe in weight loss surgery as one of the most effective treatments to combat severe obesity and maintain weight loss in the long term. Talk to us about the different surgeries that are available that our listeners out there need to know about. I think the first thing that the public needs to understand very clearly is that they must always go to what we would call an accredited center. In other words, it's a center that has been picked for the right attributes. They have been carefully trained. They have a multidisciplinary team. In South Africa, we have 12 centers available. And in that context, I think the good part of the story is that it is a very safe surgery. I think that there is sometimes a misperception that bariatric surgery or surgery to help you reduce your weight if you are at a BMI 30 and above. The mortality rates worldwide and including waterfall where Dr. Fetter operates is only 0.1%. That is far less than, for instance, if we can put it into context, the mortality rates for a gallbladder operation. But how safe are these procedures and do the benefits outweigh the risks? I think that the public must understand that there are various forms of surgeries that we can pick for a particular patient. So there are different forms of surgeries that can be done and depending on the complexity of the patient's condition, obviously the complexity of the surgery will also be more advanced. And some of these procedures can take up to two to three hours. Something like the gastric bypass, for instance, in a female that is at a weight of BMI 40 can be as quick as 40 minutes. That is what we would call the gastric, classically what the people will see is referred to as the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And these patients can be mobilized within six to eight hours in a good center. They're only in a hospital for two nights. But it's the preparation and the aftercare that is really important. And that is where your multidisciplinary team comes in to assist your surgeon. Your surgeon can basically not operate without them. 
Do you find that more and more excessively overweight individuals look to various weight loss interventions in order to combat their obesity? Yes, I think that it's a growing trend worldwide. It's not just South Africa, but obviously we are very proud that we're leading the African continent in this context with world-class facilities. But it is a worldwide trend because we know that it is really the only method, once you've reached a BMI of 35 with comorbidities or 40 definitively, that will give you long-term good outcome data. It's the only intervention that we have available at the moment where we can safely turn around to the patient and say to them, you will keep this weight down for the next 20 or 30 years of your life safely. What about proper obesity management programs within the public and private healthcare sector? How important are these programs? Obesity to me is a bit of a heartache story and I'm glad you're asking that question because it's so difficult to place it into context because I think there are so many fly-by-night strategies and a lifestyle intervention program, I think the best way to look at it is to say that a true obesity program with a lifestyle intervention without a surgical intervention works best in the category BMI 27, perhaps up to 35. Once you reach the BMI of 35, it becomes significantly more difficult. And I think that the public is too gullible and they are looking for a quick fix solution in terms of obesity programs as such. What they really need to do is to look at the scientific merit. And again, it's difficult for the public to judge what will be a good obesity management program and what is really a fly-by-night hoax program. I think the best is, is if you're not sure, to go onto a credible website and then see what is said about that particular obesity management program on that website. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people, Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In South Africa, some of the buses collecting workers from Maropong Township in Lipalale in the Limpopo province to the Midupi power station were turned back this morning. 3,000 workers are on a sympathy strike supporting 1,700 workers who were dismissed three weeks ago. The workers were dismissed after they embarked on an illegal march demanding bonuses. National Union of Mine Workers says it's engaged in meetings with ESCOM and contractors in a bill to resolve the problem.
South African stocks have advanced to an all-time high as emerging markets benefit from low global interest. This is prompting investors to seek assets deemed as risky for higher returns. The JSC Africa All Share Index rallied for a fourth day to extend gains for the week to 2.3%, the most on a closing basis since the five days through on through on January the 30th. An index of 10 retail companies jumped 2.1% to a record high on Friday. South African shopping chains struggled last year as unemployment of about 25% prolonged strikes and high levels of personal debt contributed to a contraction in household incomes. The all-share index climbed 0.8% by the close in Johannesburg, the highest on record. The National Bank of Abu Dhabi is seeking to expand its wealth management business in Africa. This says it looks to maintain strong growth at a time when its home region is being impacted by political and economic uncertainty. The largest lender by assets in the United Arab Emirates saw profit and revenue posted by its global wealth unit jump 61% and 89% year-on-year respectively in 2014, with revenue surpassing $272 million for the first time. National Bank of Abu Dhabi has been focusing on growing its free-paying businesses such as wealth management in recent quarters as it aims to offset high levels of competition in traditional banking product lines in the UAE. However, lower oil prices coupled with unrest in many parts of the Middle East have negatively impacted equity markets so far this year, hurting investor confidence. According to the bank, the diversification strategy should help offset the recent challenges of weaker local markets. The bank is also looking to expand business to to Asia. South Africa's slipping rand has proved positive for Zimbabwe's bond coins, with more Zimbabweans agreeing to use a previously unpopular new currency. This is according to the privately owned Standard newspaper. Bond coins were introduced by the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe in December 2014. In denominations of 1, 5, 10, 25 and now 50 cents, the coins were introduced to make it easier to for, shop, for shops and traders to issue change. They can only be used in Zimbabwe. The Standard reports that the rand's decline in South Africa boosted bond coins in the local economy because their value is seen as stable. Some vendors are reportedly hoarding bond coins to sell them to street money traders. The World Bank has cut its 2015 growth forecast for developing East Asia and China. The bank warns of significant risks from global uncertainties, including the potential impact of a strengthening dollar and higher U.S. interest rates. The Washington-based lender expects the developing East Asia and Pacific region, which includes China, to grow 6.7% in each of 2015 and 16, down from 7.9% growth in 2014. That's down from the previous forecast in October of 6.9% growth this year and 6.8% in 2016. China's growth is likely to, to slow due to policies aimed at putting its economy on a more sustainable footing and tackling financial vulnerabilities. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.97 South African rand, at 9.66 Botswana Pula and at 7.36 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and at 0.94 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,204 and platinum at $1,163 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $57.87 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next with Tami Kuza. Good morning. South Africa and Ivory Coast have failed to qualify for the All-Africa Games. The South African national under-23 soccer team made a late rally, but it was a question of too little too late as they failed to qualify for the All-Africa Games. Despite winning 1-0 in the second leg at the Dobsonville Stadium on Saturday, they could not overturn a tunnel deficit they suffered in Khartoum two weeks ago to bow out 2-1 on aggregate. Under-23 coach Owen Dagama says that they left it too late to get the required goals in this game. I thought the boys were absolutely fantastic. I believe if we had the same team in Sudan, we'd be talking a different story today. Um, these players, I mean, Taplo Mumorena was available. He was, some, he was exceptional. Kwandang Wanyama. You know, these, these players just bring a little bit of extra quality to us. And uh, if these players are not available, it makes it difficult. Um, but, but in saying that, um, you know, uh, um, uh, if, if you consider... The amount of time that, that these boys have spent together, I'm very proud. They it was a day of mixed feelings as Banyana Banyana qualified for the All-Africa Games and the men's under-23 national team failed to qualify after matches against Botswana and Sudan respectively at the Dobsonville Stadium on Saturday. Banyana beat Botswana 2-0 to make a 6-0 on aggregate after having won the first leg 1-0 in Khaborone and will make their way to the All-Africa Games in September. Banyana coach Vera Pau has credited this clinical performance to a good preparation the team had. We had a very good preparation now and uh, all the players were both um, in, in, in their football fitness ready for this game but also in our team- teamwork. Our teamwork is a key issue um, in the way we play. We are, uh, as we call, tiny frogs. And uh, as you can see also, all our opponents are bigger and stronger here. Uh, so we need to play a different game. Uh, but to play the, that different game, you need each other. Um, and our starting point is a very good occupation of the pitch and very good possessional play. Banyana's next game is against Gabon or Libya in the Olympic qualifiers and Vera Pau says it will be an interest, interest, interesting preparation for the All-Africa Games. Yeah, we will have the, um, our qualifier against Gabon halfway May, home and away. I think first ho- away, then home. Then we have in September the All-Africa Games and of course we will prepare well for that. Uh, but the All-Africa Games in itself, part of that it's a tournament that we want to win some silverware, um, is also a great preparation for our games against Nigeria in October if we win from Gabon in May. It's a bit complicated because May is uh, Olympic qualifier, then October is Olympic qualifier against Nigeria with the All-Africa Games in between. And so it's great, a great build-up. In local football, Mamelodi Sundowns have clinched the remaining NetBank Cup semi-final spot following their 2-0 win over Mpumalanga Black Aces in Nelspreet yesterday. Both goals came in the second half. Sundowns will play Vasco da Gama, while Supersport United will travel to Cape Town to face Ajax Cape Town in the final four. The venue will be announced soon. People from all walks of life, along with the top government officials that included Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, and Sports Minister Fikile Mbalula, gave their overwhelming support at the memorial service at the FNP Stadium. As South Africa took a moment to recognize the late football great Dr. Steve Madi Mokone, who was affectionately known as Kalamazoo. Sports Minister Fikile Mbalula. 
we are indebted to the family for giving us an opportunity at this moment to share this final journey of Dr. Kalamazumukoni with the rest of South Africa. He said, don't organize a funeral for me, but a celebration of life in order to educate the generation of young people about the fact that we have made the contribution to as much as we can. In athletics, a bus carrying a group of young athletes and government officials has crashed into a tanker truck in southern Morocco. Authorities have said that most of the victims were killed in the ensuing fire. A head-on collision of a bus carrying a delegate of young athletes and a truck killed at least 31 people and injured a further nine. Majority of victims are children who are aged between 8 and 14. The crash took place in Chibka district near the southern desert city of Tantan. The bus apparently hit a truck tanker truck which then burst into flames consuming both vehicles the bus was said to be heading from capital Rabat. that's the end of our sport stay tuned to channel africa and back to lulu kabu africa rise and shine Africa, Zorba, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Sudan denies bombing sites in South Sudan. Kenya orders UN to move Somali refugee camp and Hillary Clinton kicks off her 2016 presidential campaign. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers... Pumuza Ramagadza and Selina Dobong, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Cesario Evora with a track titled Sangi di Berona.